Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Claire Ingram Bogush and Stefan Larsen. Claire and Stefan, with Janusz Andersson Svarts, are the editors of the book Human Centered AI in the EU Trustworthiness as a Strategic Priority in the European Member States. This is a publication from the responsibility of Foresh, the Forum for Reforms, Entrepreneurship and Sustainability, a green, liberal and independent think tank in Sweden, and the European Liberal Forum. In today's conversation, we're going to go into some of the details of the publication, but that does not preclude you from reading it because it's a very important work. And you can find the link to the document on the show notes, where I'm also going to put the link to the webinar that was organized by Foresh on YouTube, where we have the launch of the publication. So with no further ado, I bring you Claire Bogosh and Stefan Larsen. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by Health to the month of December. I'm here with Claire Bogush and Stefan Larsen. Claire, Stefan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. And as I did in the introduction of the podcast, we're going to talk mainly about the publication Human-Centered AI in the European Union. But before that, I'm going to go into a more of a technical detail and I'll throw it to you immediately, Stefan. And that is, so people that will read the document and the document will be on the show notes, the link to have access to it. There's this set of uh, member states in the European Union that were chosen to be part of the publication. Tell us a little bit what were the criteria for you to go in that direction. Early realized we couldn't uh, analyze all the countries, uh, but uh, so we need to make a sample, uh, which is often done. And also it's hard to write a book with, you know, that many chapters, if you would include all member states. But uh, um, to me, it was particularly intriguing to not choose the more often focused ones like Germany, Germany and France, but to compare what seemingly are pretty different types of countries. So you, so we picked, you know, went west, Portugal, but then compared to Czech Republic, and then south would be Italy, but also including the Nordic countries because they seem to uh, often sort of the narrative is that they have a similarity amongst themselves, uh, particularly related to trust, which is part of the core of this analysis. So we picked a sample of different types. Um, and it also played into the collaboration we have with the um, European Liberal Forum and, and the, the think tank Forest, which is uh, working with with uh, other institutes in Czech Republic and Italy and uh, Port- Portugal. So there's a pragmatic aspect to it as well. But uh, yeah, sure. Way- going for the comparisons was, was very intriguing. Going into the document now, and not too much because, of course, we want our listeners to read it, but the first chapter is Trustworthy AI as a European Policy. And there's so much rich information here, but I want to go immediately to what is one of the key vectors in this conversation, which is how to make AI to be ethical, human-centered and trustworthy. So staying with you, uh, Stefan, and then throwing to Claire, tell us why is this so important that deserves a publication in itself? Well, uh, this, um, I mean, that's, this is a global issue, uh, the development and application or uh, uh, employment of 
artificial intelligence. It's been going on for a few years only, uh, sort of the um, explosion in, in, in promises and maybe also awareness of challenges. And I think it's on that level, particularly interesting that the European path has been so much focused on trustworthy AI, the ethical aspects of it, and also then the human-centered. So um, that would be number one. What does it mean that Europe has chosen this path? And number two would be, yeah, Europe is not stronger than what is reflected on member state level. Uh, so the interesting sort of core question for this volume deals with that. So to, to what extent is this ethical, human-centered, trustworthy AI reflected in member states? Uh, so that would be, you know, what, that's where we came from and looking into it. Claire, you want to add something here? Absolutely. So, so there's a very definite moral and, and ethical motivation behind um, the, the guidelines on, on AI, but there's also a, a kind of pragmatic and, and commercial motivation. And, and the first of these is around um, having rules that are clear ex ante so, so that businesses and particularly entrepreneurs that want to go into, into um, AI know what it is that will apply. And so that it creates some sort of certainty, which um, improves the conditions for, for innovation and commercialization. Um, so, so it's very much about making sense of that, but but also then about unifying the market, about making the whole of Europe um, available for for potential AI projects, um, because many many industries and areas are, are very fragmented, and it becomes very difficult then to to commercialize and, and to spread. Um, so, so really starting from from the unified position. Um, but but then the the last and I think most important thing is that um, transparency uh, is is not again not just ethics for the sake of ethics. It also means that you can improve the quality of the things that are done with AI um, because you you know how to build them right from the outset. So, so you know that they have to be transparent and, and explainable, um, which allows for avenues to, to kind of um, error check after the fact um, and, and consequently improve them. But, but also building trust then means that uh, citizens and ordinary people are more willing to, to cooperate with those that, that collect and generate and analyze data. Um, and if we want to, to do important digital things, then, then that's important. This then brings me to one of the points that we discussed often during the YouTube presentation of the document, and you can find it on the show notes of this episode, which is the need and importance to be people-based, people-focused. So when we're talking about policy and investment has to be based on people and people's needs. So Stefan, I'll go back to you. Tell us a little more about this particular need. Uh, well, one of the sort of obvious things is, um, uh, I think uh, Claire touched upon it, is also that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fallacy sometimes to think that you can produce great technology that's going to be applied without including human values in it. Because the, what sets the expectations on technology and its development is found in society. So it's like a loop in a sense. Uh, there are some great papers on that as well. Uh, so, for example, when you look at um, some of the cases that we've seen that when it's gone wrong, like facial recognitions that has been pretty poor on uh, dark skin or uh, female faces, uh, that's not that's not like an added layer you put and talk about ethics afterwards. It's it's just a poor product. 
I would I would argue then. So so in order to make that product better, you need that awareness. Okay, how are how are humans? You know, human society structured. What does this sort of organizational uh, level place into the development of technology? And if you don't see that in the early or at development phase, you would uh, risk ending up with a poor product that, at worst, actually is a, a, a discriminatory product. Yeah, racist product. So that's sort of at the core, uh, I would say, is a good argument, uh, I think. That's a great point. And Claire, you during that YouTube uh, event that we just had for the launch of the publication, you mentioned that, which is the, the risk of discrimination when we take data out of the context and again, centered in people and how can that affect uh, other groups? So can you go in a little bit into that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, and this, I guess, builds on what, what Stefan just said. Um, da data are not uh, generated in a vacuum, but of course, when, when they're captured, they're, they're divor divorced from everything that makes them meaningful. And that's partly about fairness, but partly about what it is that makes sense. Um, so we talk about spurious correlations. When, when you have sufficiently large data sets, then, then things start to correlate that, that really aren't uh, aren't correlated, like kilograms of cheese consumption and, and people dying in their bedsheets, um, there, there's no correlation. Um, it's, it's just sheer, sheer inaccuracy when you, when you divorce from context because you can't see when, when the correlations found in the data are actually meaningful. But, be, but the other is also um, when, <clears throat> when, when you remove context, then you don't notice when data themselves are biased. Um, when data themselves either are incomplete or have holes um, or, or just only represent one selection, one, one sample in a population. Um, and we as, as people um, maybe are a little bit better, although not perfect, at, at identifying those biases and those inadequacies. Um, and so it becomes very useful then um, to, to combine, to marry the competence of, of algorithms and AI and, and human common sense um, in order to overcome problems around bias and discrimination, um, but also just to, to improve, as, as Stefan said, the quality of, of the decisions and, and the processes that are an outcome of, of AI and algorithms. One of the things that is related to all these topics that we're discussing is the accountability. And that is also something that is mentioned in the publication. And Stefan, you also very uh, clearly uh, presented that need and it connects to what uh, Claire was just saying and that is all right the machine is working but then how can we have the accountability running the software and the human intervention to it so go a little bit into that please much of this um, you can have a, a number of different angles but one is uh, trust actually uh, so if, if if a tool or a, a process is going to be implemented uh, not everyone's going to understand how it uh, works to uh, detail right and that's not a new thing for ai it's for for any tech that's developed and implemented but trustworthiness is related to accountability so if you don't know how to assess risks uh, when you implement or use the tool, it's very hard to to sort of um, have a public confidence or a, um, everyday uses trusting it. Like if it's a great tool for for a, I don't know health prediction in a particular field, uh, no one would use it unless you could uh, point fingers when it went wrong or 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 understand how it truly works. So trust is related to accountability and and therefore also risk. Um, 
but uh, sort of a, a cousin or twin to it, I would say uh, transparency, because transparency is often talked about in, in, in relationship to accountability. Yeah, Particularly, I mean, if something goes wrong and we have autonomous cars crashing and stuff like that, you need to be able to find out what went wrong and sort of point fingers in a sense. Uh, uh, and transparency, I would say, is also one of the one of the talks we're going to continue with next year, especially in terms of what sort of regulatory, uh, mandatory aspect should we put on development and application or sort of employment of AI. So transparency is one of the key areas, I guess, uh, for our future regulatory talks as well. Then, uh, and Stefan, I'll stay with you because one thing that is mentioned by Claire, it's the need to harmonize regulation, to make the playing field uh, to be perfectly understandable for whoever, entrepreneur or big company that works, that wants to work in the European Union. And actually, we had a question, which is, is the European Union a right organization to make this call, accountability, transparency? And then I'm going to ask Claire for the same opinion. But what is your take on that? I guess uh, Claire could talk much better about that. But uh, it's hard for uh, for developing uh, tech on a market if the market is very dispersed into different types of regulatory means. So that would be the harmonization argument in a sense. So and and and. AI, if you look at it globally, Europe is in a sense competing with the US and China. So it wouldn't be making sense to see every, each and every country in Sweden uh, competing amongst themselves in a sense. But uh, mm -hmm. Claire, the market argument. Yeah, um, so, so I've done a lot of my previous research, particularly in, in finance and fintech. Um, and one of the huge problems in, in finance is, although there have been many, many attempts to harmonize finance after the fact, um, once industries become very mature, it's almost impossible to do um, because because everybody has vested interests in in the status quo. And and so what's really going on here is is uh, practical though, although it is more practical than it is ideological. Um, there's a very definite attempt to to try and do this harmonisation um, before AI and algorithms really become very very big. Uh, and and of course it's difficult um, because because the EU is is not a monolith, and there are different different values, different things that different countries want represented um, and and want included in that. Uh, so so it's a it's no doubt an uphill battle. Um, but but it's it's going to be impossible or nearly impossible to to do it once once the AI ecosystem is a lot more mature. Um, so so it really does have to be done now, um, especially and and there's this this discussion already of of kind of a technological rivalry. With, with the US and with China, um, the only way that, that Europe is going to be able to compete, compete, both when it comes to volume of data and when it comes to conditions to, to uh, attract entrepreneurs and, and innovative thinkers, is by offering that, that unified market of, of scale and scope. And I'm going to bring up to this conversation someone that is not going to be here with us today, but we already recorded a podcast with him, which is Professor Frederick Eintz, where he said during the YouTube launch that Europe cannot be a leader on AI regulation without being a leader in AI. So, uh, again, the importance of the European Union not only setting the standard for other markets, but also be ourselves being the leaders. Now, I want to go back to the question of algorithm transparency. Algorithm 
transparency as and as you said Claire and throw it to you as a moral and strategic imperative you already mentioned that uh, in in passage but let's go a little more into that why is this important and particularly in the moment that in society terms we are very scared which all this regulation of speech of economics of politics being done by the algorithms inside the machines yeah i think uh, transparency is important for two reasons um the one the one is just sheer troubleshooting after the fact so when you see that there is some discriminatory outcome or where there is a, a poor poor decision made on the basis of an algorithm, then you need to be able to go back and figure out why it is and remedy it um, moving forward. Um, so, so that's just pure practical. The, but the other one is to do with trust, and this is very much people-facing, where... Um, where if people um, trust that uh, that, that they uh, maybe not, not necessarily fully understand the algorithm, but that there is the possibility to scrutinize what it is that an algorithm has done and why, um, then that makes them more likely, uh, hopefully, <laughs> to, to, be, to be willing to use services um, that, that rely on algorithms. But crucially, if, if we are to connect and, and collect um, enough data to make meaningful decisions and, and meaningful insights on the basis uh, uh, using algorithms, then then we need to get people to to trust the algorithms that are going to use them. Um, and, and in that way, people then will be willing to donate their data or, or, or share their data. Um, but also hopefully down the line, once once you you have not just the transparency and the trust, then you can build things like, like data markets um, that allow people to, to benefit from from the data that are collected um, and also mean that you have fewer holes because there's not just trust, but there also are incentives for individuals um, to, to contribute their data. Uh, and, and, and so that makes everything much more effective. Stefan, you as a lawyer and particularly interested in this uh, area of AI, do you want to add something here? Yeah, I think that uh, some of the tricky questions will be about balancing of uh, whose interest should come first or one interest towards another. Like uh, uh, much of the development will be on in the private sector, but also um, for solutions used in the public sector, which is sort of a trend coming now. Uh, but one of the challenges will be how to balance interest between the developers and their interests in in uh, keeping uh, business secrets or uh, intellectual property rights or uh, not just showing how they solve the problem through to I mean towards the um, competitors, but on the other hand, the public sector or the public interest in uh, in knowing how tools works. So I guess that uh, some of the um, uh, key points that I see in in, in the year ahead would be to stress supervisory authorities both abilities mm. but also uh, uh, like competence but also tools for them to be able to uh, monitor or supervise markets that are very much uh, data driven and automated so that would be classical consumer agency for example or data protection agency or maybe even uh, competition authorities so they they would be they are in, in facing a new sort of a automated scalable market that also will be linked to public sector and they would i uh, the way i see it they they stand in front of uh, a great need of improving their expertise on how to even supervise these types of markets so that's one strand with regards to transparency that i that i think is really 
particularly uh, important. Uh, and that that is not the type of argument saying all AI tools should be completely transparent because markets don't don't work like that. But you could have like a qualitative transparency for the for the supervision or the scrutiny from sort of uh, supervisory supervisory authorities that does not ruin the comp competitive markets in a sense. So that's one particular transparency issue that I see uh, much need to stress in a sense. Stefan, that is a great point, and just that it will make me ask you both of you come back to the podcast because who regulates? It's a it's a big big question, and like you, I follow this closely, and I know that, for example, the United Kingdom, there are conversations to have a central regulator. The European Union is also discussing that. So, uh, who does it, and how uh, do we do that? We're getting to the end of the conversation, but there's two topics that I want to bring to our discussion. One of them was, again, Frederick Eintz that brought it up, and that is the need of education, of retraining, reskilling people. And Stefan, I also know that you are very interested in, in our podcasts in the past where you talked about it, interdisciplinary needs. So let's get into that. How can we make this grid of uh, relationships in this area? Yeah, to me, that's, um, that's um, a question that uh, stresses the traditional way we uh, arrange or organize academia, uh, actually, because the way, we, uh, the way we organize academia will play out, uh, will, I mean, that will have implications for what sort of competences or knowledges we will have out there. Uh, and today, uh, we tend to be pretty traditional. So we have the engineering education in, in one part of the town, and then you have the lawyers in the other, and the econ economists, and then the ethicists even uh, somewhere else, uh, which is a problem, I think, for many of these issues. I would love, and I see a need for also academia to sort of reassess uh, the, uh, how we organize, organize the programs, actually, uh, and sort of stress on both sides. Like, we, we need to have engineers who knows deeply the technology development, but also has uh, at least uh, uh, an interest and sort of uh, awareness of societal consequences or or uh, value-based uh, ethical consequences. And on the other hand, we need uh, also sociologists and, and uh, psychologists who sort of looks into automation and, and data-driven applications to the extent that they can at least understand what sort of questions should be asked not necessarily we can't expect any side to be expert on everything but we need to make the different sides better to communicate uh, and then uh, not the least also the legal field and the legal faculties needs to uh, often i think open up a bit and be better at communicating with engineers for example in this case i must say that one of the things that characterize stefan is is consistency regarding our podcast because you made this <laughs> argument <laughs> yeah, yeah, already yeah. several times and we need to keep doing it I feel and like claire haven't changed yet so uh, yes keep that is true arguing. claire do you want to go into that into this a little bit yeah absolutely just uh, very briefly i mean we we're talking quite a lot here about uh, about governments about commerce um uh, about the the effects for society but but we're really we're we're 
one of the things that gives our lives as humans a lot of meaning is is the arts and humanities and, and popular culture, um, both in terms of representation, but also in terms of ideas that make things really, really rich. Um, and this is something that isn't discussed so much when it comes to, to AI, that it's not just about how do we create value and how do we make sure that people have jobs, um, but but also making sure that um, that that there is space in all of this uh, human centered approach for for things that are beautiful, for things that are inspiring, um, and 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 that um, has positive effects both in terms of trust and in terms of understanding, because writers have long translated um, popular culture into things that are more accessible through through novels and and, and other forms of art um, but but also also just just because what what else would the point be um, if, if not to to also create these beautiful things so so I think there must be space here for for interdisciplinarity um, and what comes up again and again is the funding of the scientific advances um, and and both basic and applied research when it comes to AI um, but 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 I think it's equally important uh, that that we be mindful of of the humanistic and social science contributions in, in the area of AI, and that there's both money and goodwill available for those. And here I'm going to do a shout out to the third member of the editorial board, which is Jonas Schwartz, because he made that argument also the need to have. Um, philosophical, cultural, human uh, points of views when we're thinking about the machine working in, in so many areas. Now we are getting to the end of our conversation. And again, I recommend all of our listeners to go and grab the publication. It's online. And uh, Stefan, going to you, and then I'll ask uh, Claire to give us the last word. What were the main uh, conclusions from this document that you think for you particularly, you would like to uh, broadcast it to our listeners? The main overall conclusion would be that uh, the European path ahead would depend on member states. So whatever uh, sort of a strategizing is done at member state level will, will be very important for it. Uh, and I think the regulatory slash transparency issues will be uh, on the table next year on the commission as well. So where should we um, uh, improve our regulatory stance on openness and transparency in a sense? Uh, but on a more personal level, I've, I've been—I think this has been a really fun project, uh, and particularly so because it's—we are so diverse. I think we—I mean, we look, just getting to know more about the Portuguese version of uh, you know technology and society through the analysis of Pedro Fortes. That was lovely, and uh, the same thing with uh, the Czech Republic and so on. So, so that has been one of the really fun parts to get that uh, detailed knowledge on different countries. Well, if it is funny, it's not work then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, yeah, I even, I even got paid. It's weird. <laughs> Claire, how about you? What can you tell us then a major conclusion that you would like to reinforce? Absolutely. So the, it, it was great fun and, and the, the project has very much highlighted um, the, the different interests and the different 
uh, the the different strengths of the different countries that they bring to the table in crafting this uh, this shared AI policy. And and as, as Stefan said, countries that that often uh, don't have have their voices heard as loudly because these are these are not the Germanys and, and Frances of the of the European Union. So so that's the one thing is is the the complexity but the richness in in um, in crafting this this shared strategy. But the the other is just to to emphasize that um, this this kind of ethical project of of doing a human centric approach to understanding AI um, is it makes economic sense as well. It's for the good of people, but but it's also um, economically very good for the European Union. It's strategically important because of reasons around um, clarifying rules, um, encouraging innovation, um, and, and also, crucially, highlighting weaknesses. Um, so, so I think that that's something I'd like to emphasize. It's not a, it's not a case of charity or benevolence. It's strategically important. I've been talking with uh, Claire Bubush and uh, Stefan Larsen, editors of Human-Centered AI in the EU. Congratulations for the document. It's a very important contribution to a larger discussion about this crucial aspect. I would like to ask you right away to please come back to the podcast because there are so many more things we can go into. All the information will be on the show notes of uh, the episode. And I'm going to thank you so much again for having you both here in the podcast. Uh, thank you, Ricardo. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ricardo. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of December. On the 10th of December, based in Stockholm, Sweden, we have the launch of Pieces of the Puzzle, Managing Migration in the European Union. For the last two decades, the idea of a common European asylum system has been discussed in the European Union, but negotiations of a reform has put the system under scrutiny and show its underlying systemic flaws. With diverging views between member states, reaching a common solution is not an easy task, so we asked, how can the European Union collect all the pieces and complete the puzzle? To know more about these events, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>